the scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, and going through chapter 3, verse 13. The word of God speaks to us. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is God's word to us. All right, you can have a seat. Good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nye and I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, and I'm eager to dive into this text this morning with you. This is, for many of us, a very familiar passage, and I, I want to I start by saying like sometimes that familiarity uh, can actually get us into trouble because we can assume that we actually know what something's saying and we can miss sometimes profound things in a text that we've missed before. And so what I want to do is I want to pray for, for us, that God would speak to us uh, today and, and lead us into what does this mean? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to say thank you for being here. It means a lot uh, to us that you'd be here. Uh, there's no question that's going to get you uh, pushed out. i just be honest with that. Like there's no skepticism you can bring that we're going to go, well, just get out of here. We actually want to engage. And actually what we're talking about today is one of the most central understand, uh, central doctrines to uh, what Christianity believes. And so if, you, if you're interested and in curi in, in curious about Christianity, this is a great place for us to talk and start. And so I'd love to talk to you maybe after the service even. Uh, but this week we're going to be looking at, uh, this week and next, we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, uh, what we understand to be the fall, what's often called the fall. This, this morning we're going to be looking at primarily, we're going to look at it through, through the lens and through the experience of an Adam and Eve. And Derek next week is going to lead us through uh, understanding how God steps in and responds to this. And so I'm, my prayer is that these two weeks would actually be really fruitful in helping us see not just the, the danger of sin, but actually the beauty of the gospel. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you uh, to pray for me as we dive into this this morning. God, Please speak to us. 
none of us come with full understanding of this passage. None of us come with, with, with comprehensive awareness of all the things that are happening in this passage. There is so much that we miss. So I'm asking, Spirit of God, would you help us see a little bit more today than we saw when we woke up? And God, not just that we would know more. God, would you shape us? Would you, would you transform our affections? Would you lead us to faith in Jesus? Would you, would you help, us, help us understand even more, more how beautiful the gospel is and how remarkable what Jesus has done is, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I uh, spent, we spent, my wife and I and, and kids spent three years living in the front range of Colorado when I was in seminary uh, in a suburb of Denver. And one of the things I love about the mountains, besides the fact that it's just way better than the beach, um, you can email Chad if you complain about that, uh, but it's just the mountains are so much better. But what's really fascinating is you stand here and you look up and you see all these mountains, but there are these, there are these occasional peaks that shoot through that are so high, these, these, uh, these large mountains. Um, and, and they're not necessarily more special, but they are more prominent, and their prominence actually helps locate you. So sometimes you can be lost in the mountains, and you look and go, oh, there's Mount Evans. Now I know where I am. Does that make sense? There are, there are passages in scriptures that function like these big, massive mountain peaks, and this is one of the biggest ones. The Genesis 3 stands as this ma massive peak in which when we look at it, we go, that helps me locate myself and understand where I am. And so this, I want to say, is an important passage for us to look at because it deals with one of the most important questions we will ever ask as humans, and that is this. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? Yesterday, while I'm watching the Sooner game, boomer. Um, while I'm watching the game, I'm scrolling through the New York Times app on my phone, and you're just seeing Middle East terrorism and conflict. You're seeing war in Ukraine. You're seeing division in the Congress. You're seeing all kinds of stuff and just racks up. And you just go, man, something's wrong. While I'm watching the game, after I put my phone down, this little banner goes along the bottom of KOCO, and it, and it talks about, about five miles from where I'm sitting watching the game, a gal has just gone missing, and they've given an endangered missing persons uh, alert. Like, miles while I'm sitting here on the couch, somebody's in danger. And that doesn't count the fact that at that very moment, in homes and in alleys across our metro, things are happening that destroy individual lives and destroy families. Affairs are happening. Addictions are ongoing. Words that can never be brought back are said. And guys, I, I want to start here because we're not talking about something out there. We're talking about something that we experience on a regular basis. And if we're not willing occasionally to slow down and stop and ask the big question, instead of numbing out on Instagram but actually ask the question, I think we'll be confronted by something that may well haunt us. Because there are massive sins in the world, massive things wrong in the world. We can go down the list from terrorism to genocide to war to rape, or we could go behind the scenes to things that are often hidden like abuse, abortion, addiction, 
deception, betrayal. The question that dominates us is this one. What is wrong with the world? There's a long list of explanations. And I can give you a whole long list of books you can buy and podcasts you can listen to. They're going to try to answer that question, what's wrong with the world? Long list of sages with Twitter or X accounts or whatever you call it these days that are going to tell you that what's wrong with the world is simply a lack of education. If only people would educate themselves, read more, explore more, get, a, get, a, get some kind of education, they would be better off in the world. Some will say that we just don't know enough about ourselves. What's lacking is a self-awareness. If you know yourself and understand yourself better, you'll, you'll accommodate the, the, the things in the world around you better, and you'll be a peaceful place in the midst of a mess. All you need to know is, all you need to do is know yourself. In other words, what's wrong is you don't know yourself well enough. Some will say that the problem with what's going on in the world are simply oppressive cultural expectations, systems, and pressures. The world is thrusting something on me, and that doesn't work well for me. That's what's wrong with the world. Some will point to bad laws. Some will say the problem is inequality. Some will say that what's wrong is not that we're sinful, we're just sick. And then some will say we just lack something, fill in the blank. But what if we're wrong? What if the cultural voices, what if, what if the things that we read in the New York Times bestseller list actually is wrong? Because if what, we're, if what we see is, is the problem isn't the problem, then we're not going to find the solution to the problem. Does that make sense? In other words, we actually need to stop. And as, and as much as you, didn't, you may not have come in this morning going, hey, I've got a, gri- a nice cup of, uh, of coffee, and I'm going to sit down in a nice, well, I would say comfy chairs, but I don't know how comfy they are. But I'm going to sit here, and I'm going to expect we're going to sing some nice songs, and I'm going to go to brunch. And the reality is Jeff wants to talk about what? But there are moments, friends, when we have to stop and actually ask the questions that are really uncomfortable. What is wrong with the world? Well, the Bible will say it clearly. The problem is it's not lack of education. It's sin. It's sin. If we're going to understand the good news of the gospel, we need to reckon with the bad news of the presence of sin in the world. But here's here's where we can get tied up if we're not careful is that we need to get past cheap definitions of what that word means. When you get past the cheap definitions of what that word means. You see, some of us have grown up in church and, and that word has, has taken on connotations or understandings that the Bible doesn't actually give us. And some of us didn't grow up in the church, but that was a church word. That was something that, that, that we dismissed a long time ago. Sin is, is yeah, that, that, those old fuddy-duddies, those fundamentalists, they like to talk about sin, but that really doesn't have any bearing on my life. If what we're not careful is we dismiss the word because we're actually not wrestling with what it truly means. So what I want us to look at this morning is the concept of what the Bible describes to us as sin. I want to look at uh, in four movements. The first, I want us to look at the nature of sin. Second, I want to look at the effects of sin. Third, our response to sin. And fourth, God's response to sin. So first, the nature of sin. Before we get too far, we need, to rec- we need to reckon with and recognize our assumptions because the ways in which we assume that we know what the word sin means or what the concept of sin is, as soon as we make that assumption, uh, it, we, we, we've locked ourselves in in, in ways that sometimes can re- keep us from seeing the, 
the way we need to see it. I think there are two dominant ways in which in our cultural moment we tend to see sin. The first is this. We tend to see it through the idea of, of, of our governmental structure of legislature and judicial. In other words, there are people that we pay. I don't know why we pay them because they don't seem to do their job. We pay them to make laws and then we pay other people to enforce them, right? We pay people to make laws and then we pay people to enforce them. And what sometimes we do is we go, well, God is like just, he's both. He's the legislature and he's the judicial. He's, he's both the person who, who writes the laws and tells us what, what the speed limit ought to be. And he's the highway patrolman hiding around the corner trying to catch me doing 73 in the 70. Not real life thing at all. We think of it primarily through the idea of actions, behaviors that are outlawed. Does that make sense? That's one of the dominant ways in which we see this is through legislature and judicial. The second way I think we see this is a dad with toddlers. Now, this is very similar, but there's a little bit of a, a, little bit of a twist on this one. We tend to think sometimes like God is like a dad with, with a couple of toddlers running their house. His rules that he give are slightly arbitrary. Maybe more than slightly arbitrary. Like, why did you tell them they can't do that? My wife would often ask me. I don't know. It was convenient for me, right? So they're arbitrary because dad's just looking out for himself. Like, I'm just trying to enjoy the game. Like, hey, no, no, go clean your room. Why did you tell them to do that? To leave me alone. They're, they're slightly arbitrary. They're made to make uh, our, our life easier. And so that's all these rules are. God is just slightly perturbed with us. He's going to give us some restraints to get us out of his hair. Let me give you an example. My children are not in this room, but they can attest to this story in which one point over dinner, one of my children, I won't out them, uh, we're eating dinner and there are two of us that are pretty stubborn in our homes, and one of them is right now talking to you. And the, the other was eating this meal and was not eating a well-rounded meal, was not eating everything on her plate. I decided to enforce this rule. And then this word came out of my mouth. Put down the broccoli and eat your hot dog. I immediately was flooded with shame. And this sign that I have lost my mind. My child was eating, not eating well-rounded because she was eating her vegetables, not her processed food full of chemicals. See, we think sometimes that God gives us these rules and he's just being outrageous and outlandish and just, and just saying stuff to say stuff. Guys, I don't think that any of us, if I were to ask you before we started this, to define sin would have defined it that way, but there are ways in which we live as if we think that's true. God is just a slightly irritated dad, and we're his toddlers. The reason I want to lean in on those two images is that what, what, what emerges in this is we tend to think of sin as primarily equated with action or what we do. We tend to think of sin as simply things that we do or things that we're not supposed to do. And while I, I, I would argue that that is a part of it, the Bible shows us something way deeper, way more profound. That sin is not simply action. Sin encompasses all of life. Let's look at our text this morning, Genesis 2, 25 through 3, 5. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not 
ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What's happening here? In this place of peace, the biblical word for this, shalom. The shalom of the garden, this place of peace in which Adam and Eve are naked and show no shame. And what that means is not just that they're walking around without clothes on. It's saying that they are walking without trying to hide something from each other or hide something from God. They have nothing to hide. There's peace. There's no shame here. And into this place of peace, into this place of shalom, steps an intruder. I like the way that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about it. He says, this is the first, in the Bible, this is the first conversation in human history about God. And what he means is this. Up until this point, every conversation has been with God. God to mankind, mankind back to God. And this is the first time when they're like, hey, God, we're going to move you over there. We have a conversation about you. The serpent introduces to Eve and to Adam this idea of judging God. Because the, the serpent begins to talk about these things to, 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 to convey to the woman these, these lies that God's gift is not enough for her. All of this good stuff that God's giving you in the garden, it's not enough, Eve. God's holding out on you. God's holding you back from your potential. You see, we haven't even got to action, but you can already see the seeds of something deep set into Adam and Eve's hearts, can't you? So let's look at verse 6. This is devastating. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 has given us this picture of four things dominating the experience that, that Adam and Eve have. God has given them beauty. He has given them goodness. God has given them truth, and he has given them and granted them an intimacy, both with himself and with each other. These beautiful gifts that God has given to Eve and to Adam, and yet the serpent says it's not enough. He plants something in her heart that says, God's not enough. God's holding out on me. Before there's ever an action taken, do you see what's happening in the heart? Do you see it? I would argue that what the text here is showing us is the fact that sin doesn't just, is not just an action, it actually reorients the way we relate to the world in four key ways. It reorients the way we live in the world in four key ways. The first is this, it reframes our understanding of beauty. In other words, it reframes how we see the world, how we see. You see, how you see the world shapes 
how you make your way in the world. Here's a, here's a question, friends. What causes your heart to marvel? What stirs wonder? What leads you to worship? All of this emerges out of an understanding of what's really, truly beautiful in the world. And what sin does is sin takes what's truly beautiful and gives us a false image. It changes the way that we see, and as it changes the way we see the world, it changes us. The second way in which it reframes and reorients our experience of the world is is in terms of goodness or the question of what do we love? Goodness or what we love. Here's the question. What is worth your pursuit? See, what you see as good in the world will change your trajectory, what you go after, what you pursue in life, won't it? That, that what we love stirs affections and longings and desires, and friends, all of us have them. All of us have these longings. The question is, what's it directed towards? Sin mars us into, into to where we don't love what we ought to love. We actually love the thing we ought to hate. James K. Smith wrote a brilliant book, I highly recommend you pick it up, called You Are What You Love. You Are What You Love. And the, the whole book's argument is this, that actually you are shaped by your affections. And that one of the things that God's doing in forming us into the image of Christ is changing our hearts to be like his hearts, to long for the right things. The third way in which reality is reordered is our understanding of truth or who do we believe. I didn't just say what do we believe, I said who do we believe. Because the source matters. What is true or who is true in the world? Guys, we live dominated by fake news and competing truth claims. And we're in a moment where you've got to figure out who is it that you trust because they're not, all, not all the voices are saying the same things. And this idea of sin turns us from looking to God as the source of truth to looking at ourselves or looking at others. And the fourth is this, intimacy. It reorients our understanding of intimacy or how do we relate to other humans and how do we relate to God. It reframes the way we understand the ideas of communion and friendship and covenant. You see, when sin invades, sin changes the way we view uh, intimacy. It changes the way we relate to one another. It hollows out our relationships because we begin to treat other people as tools or vehicles to get what we want. Sin reorients our understanding of these four things. These four things were given as gifts in Genesis 1 and 2. We were given beauty. We were given goodness. We were given truth. We were given intimacy. And sin comes in and reorders our way of seeing those things. You see, friends, this is not mere action. This is way deeper than that. It reorders our place in the world. You see, what what the serpent is doing when he draws Eve's ear and whispers in it this doubt about God and having this conversation about God with him not in the room, what he's doing is he's saying, hey, I think you'd be a better God than he is anyway. And she believed it. And so do you. You see, sin leads us to reorder our place in the world and we begin to put ourselves in the place of God himself. 
we begin to think that we know best what's beautiful. We know what's best, what's good. We know how to create intimacy. We know how to find truth. We place ourselves in the position of ultimate authority. We deify ourselves. I love this quote from Victor Hamilton in his, in his commentary on Genesis. He says this, deification or, or the desire to make oneself into God is a fantasy difficult to repress and a temptation hard to reject. It is, isn't it? So if that's the reality of sin, that it's more than action, it, it hits it deeper than that. What are the effects of sin? What are the effects of sin? You see, sin promises much, doesn't it? The, 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 the descriptor for the serpent was crafty, crafty. You see, what the serpent didn't do was come in and go, well, let me give you a bullet point presentation of all the ways in which God's in error and you're actually in, you should do these other things. That's not what he does. He starts with a whisper. What's fascinating is in the text it says, did God really say? In the, in the Hebrew, and I'm not a Hebrew expert, this is what the commentaries tell me, the, the question, it's not really a question there. It's more like, it's not so much a, a question, it, it's more like a, a statement of feigned shock. Are you kidding? Did, did, God, did God really say that? You've got to be kidding. That's what the serpent is doing. It's not an honest interrogation. It's a judgment made. And with that judgment, there's a promise made that, hey, I actually have something better for you. You see, the serpent is put forward in this case, or puts himself forward here as a sage, one who knows what's real, knows wisdom, and can lead in the way of wisdom. The serpent places themselves as a sage and makes a promise. The question, though, that, that, or what the text will show us, though, is that that promise leads to, to something else. It produces something else. This is something that the Bible um, will, will, will speak about um, um, in, throughout all the Bible, but particularly in passages in the New Testament, Paul will pick this up in what theologians will ca call now original sin. In other words, that what they'll say is Adam and Eve, the sin in the garden is the original sin. It's the first sin. It's when sin invades our experience. But that, uh, that original sin marks us as, as sinful, and then we continue on to sin. It's like a forest, forest fire. The spark takes place, and it burns everything, and nobody can put it out. It's not just that we're sinful because Adam and Eve sinned. We will sin because Adam and Eve sinned. Does that make sense? If you want to do a deeper dive here, we don't have time to, to dive into it today. Go to Romans chapter 5. Actually, if you go Romans chapter three through, uh, cha or chapter three through chapter eight, but chapter five in particular, we'll talk about this. That what's happening here is an original sin that leads to an ongoing sin. Cornelius Plantinga says it this way: Sin's not just an action. Here's what he says: Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It's both the overstepping of a line and the failure to reach it. It's both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is a beast crouching at the door. In sin, people attack or evade or neglect their divine calling. These and other images suggest deviance. Even when it's familiar, sin is never normal. I want you to hear that again. Even when it's familiar, sin is never normal normal. 
Sin is disruption of created harmony and then resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. Above all, sin disrupts and resists the vital human relation to God, and it does all this disrupting and resisting in a number of intertwined ways. Now listen to this. Sinful life is a partly depressing, partly ludicrous character of genuine human life. I read that because the promise that the serpent is making, that whisper in the, e- in the ear of Eve, is to try to promise something that ends up mocking her verses later. The promise doesn't deliver. I would argue that, that in this, what's happening when we sin, the effect of sin is that we make four massive trades. As humans, we trade we, in four separate ways um, that, that actually mark the effects of sin around us. And the first is this, we trade beauty for corruption. You see, what sin brings into our experience is this trade in which what we're offered from God is beauty, but we don't want that beauty. We trade it in on something else. We think we're trading it in on something better, only to realize that what we got was ashes in return. Sin leads us to a second trade. We trade goodness for desolation. It's fascinating, too, again, if you walk through Genesis, the ways in which Genesis will contrast life in the, the wilderness or the desert in, wilder, in, in life and life in the promised land. This life in the garden of Eden that God has created, he creates it full of goodness. And then he has a promise later of this promised land that's full of goodness, flows with milk and honey. And he contrasts that with this place in which thorns and thistles grow. Do you, do you understand that? And what Adam and Eve are doing is they're taking this lush garden and they're trading it in on what they think is an upgrade only to find themselves surrounded by sand and thistles. They trade goodness for desolation. See, none of us think we're trading for these things when we sin, do we? We think we're upgrading. We think we're getting something better, but we don't. The third trade we make, we trade truth for delusion. Now, this one's way easier to see in other people, and I say that because it's true, and also this is why you need people around you that you're willing to listen to, because they'll see things in you that you don't see in you. We trade truth for delusion. You guys have all watched a friend get caught up in some idea, some delusion, and it destroys them and the people around them, haven't you? Now, what you miss more often is when you get caught up in the delusion. Because when you're the one deluded, you just think you're wise. Friends, just side note, like you need people in your lives that can tell you no and tell you you're crazy. Because when we trade for truth, we think we're getting more truth. And what we end up coming away with is a delusion. There's no truth in it. It doesn't correspond to reality. And it will destroy us from the inside out. The fourth thing is that we trade intimacy for isolation. This is so, this is so devastating, friends. What we long for more than anything in this world is connection with somebody else that's not contingent. Isn't it? 
And that transcends marriage, that transcends kids. That's like all friendships. Like what we're longing for is the kind of friendship, the kind of connection with somebody, the kind of intimacy that means that I can know and be known and not feel shame and not feel ostracization and not feel like if I do the wrong thing, I'm gonna get kicked out the door and not be afraid that they're gonna say something behind my back and stab me when I'm not looking, that we're longing for that kind of relationship with one another, and we're longing for that, whether we recognize that, that this, that's what this longing is or not, we're, we're longing for that intimacy with God, and yet what do they come away with? They come away alone. They trade in intimacy and get isolation. This, friends, these four trades is what is what God means when he tells Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of this tree, this tree, you will surely die. What they got was physical death, yes, but they got a death that was way more devastating. They got the kind of death that invades you while you're alive. This is why Genesis 3 is the saddest chapter in the Bible. There's much horrible thing, there are many horrible things that come in other chapters in the Bible that may sound more grotesque and may sound more harmful, but none of them are more devastating or more sad than this. Because in many of the things that will happen in the future, people are trading one sinful experience for another sinful experience, even if it's worse. In this case, you're exchanging perfection for corruption. So how do we respond? Because, friends, there's no going back. There's no, like, hit the reset button, let's just try that over again. There's no, re- there's no restart. So how do we respond? What, what do we do? Well, I think it's worth starting and looking at what Adam and Eve do. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, this verse frames this section by pointing us back to verse 25 in which what? They were naked and what? Without a shame. Without a shame. Now something has done, something has marked them, something has moved in, and they now recognize that something is off and they need to cover themselves. They move from being naked and not ashamed to being naked and overwhelmed by shame. Now look at verses 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God, called, um, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you going? Or I'm sorry, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? And the the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There are three main things that Adam and Eve do here. The first is they run and hide, which is silly. They're trying to hide from the ever-present one. They run and they hide. They're trying to close off anybody from seeing what they've done. 
The second is they cower in shame. They pull back and they try to clothe themselves to hide because they now are experiencing something they've never experienced before. And then third, they shift to blame the other one. Friends, does this not sound familiar to you? That's what we do, isn't it? We're experts in this. We do something, we go run around the corner, try to hide it so nobody finds out. We cower in shame. We, 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 uh, we do all kinds of things to try to cover up things so people don't see, and then we just blame somebody else. It's not my fault. It's my parents' fault. It's not my fault. It's the government's fault. It's not my fault. It's what my sibling did. It's not my fault. I wasn't given these opportunities. It's not my fault. We respond all the same ways. Bonhoeffer says it this way, shame is the expression of the fact that we no longer accept the other person as the gift of God. Let that sink in for a second. Shame is the expression of the fact that we no longer accept the other person as the gift of God. Shame expresses my passionate desire for the other person and the knowledge that belongs to it that the other person is no longer satisfied just to belong to me but desires something from me. Shame covers me before the other because of my own evil and because of his evil, because of the division that has come between us. And then he says this, shame only comes into existence in the world of division. That's how we respond, but how does God respond? Because it it matters how we respond. It does. But what matters more is how does God respond to this? Like I said, we're going to talk more about this next week, but I want you to recognize this, that when Adam and Eve run and hide, God pursues them. Here's, here's, here's what we see in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Look at this. But the Lord God called to man and said, where are you? In the very moment in which God would have been justified to just go, I'm done with you. I gave you a command. You disobeyed it. You're done. You're dead to me. He doesn't. They run and hide, and God pursues them. Adam, where are you? The second thing he does is while they cower in shame, he covers them. He covers them. We're going to see this next week in Genesis, the, the, the last half of Genesis 3, how he clothes them. But if we point back or point forward to the New Testament, what we see is that Jesus himself covers us in his blood. He clothes us with righteousness that we didn't deserve, we didn't earn, we couldn't purchase. When we cower in shame, he covers us. And that third, that when we point blame to others, God restores us by, listen to this, taking on the consequences of our sin himself. Blame is us trying to shift the consequences to somebody else. They're actually to blame. Give them the consequences. God says, I'll take them. I'm not guilty, but I'll take your consequence. I will take your death and I will offer you life in exchange. Friends, I I hope that we can see here what sin really is and the ways that it hides in our hearts. Here's where I want to end. I want to end with with that question that God gave to Adam. Where are you? Where are you? What are the sins that you're trying to run and hide from? 
What are the things that you're trying to cover up? What are the things that carry, that, 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 that cover you in shame? What are the things that you try to blame others for? Where are you? That's God's question to you today. Because the beauty is that in Jesus, he offers you life in exchange for your death. Because of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the throne of heaven, because of all those things, God says death doesn't get the last word. Notice your Bible doesn't end at Genesis 3. The rest of the Bible is leading us into the ways that Jesus himself, that God himself will come after us to rescue us from the very ways in which we've destroyed shalom. And one day, he will place us in a garden. (laughs) He'll place us in a garden full of beauty, full of goodness, full of truth, and full of intimacy that lasts forever.